Act Three of The School for Wives by Moliere. Translated by Henry van Laun. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Act Three. Scene One. Arnolf, Agnes, Alain, Georgette. Yes, all has gone well. My joy is extreme. You have obeyed my orders to perfection and brought the fair seducer to utter confusion. See what it is to have a wise counsellor. Your innocence, Agnès, has been betrayed. Look what you have been brought to before you had been aware of it. You are treading, deprived of my warnings, right down the broad path to hell and perdition. The way of all these young fops is but too well known. They have their fine rolls, plenty of ribbons and plumes, big wigs, good teeth, a smooth address. But I tell you, they have the cloven foot beneath. And they are very devils, whose corrupt appetites try to prey upon the honour of women. This time, however, thanks to the care that has been taken, you have escaped with your virtue. The style in which I saw you throw that stone at him, which has dashed the hopes of all his plans, still more determines me not to delay the marriage for which I told you to prepare. But before all, it is well I should speak a few words with you which may be salutary. To Georgette and Alain. Bring out a chair in the open air. As for you, if you ever... We shall take care to remember all your instructions that other gentlemen imposed on us, but... If he ever gets in here, may I never drink another drop. Besides, he's a fool. He gave us two gold crowns the other day, which were underweight. Well, get what I ordered for supper. And as to the contract I spoke of, let one of you fetch the notary, who lives at the corner of the marketplace. Scene 2. Arnulf, Agnes. Arnulf, seated. Agnes, put your work down, and listen to me. Raise your head a little, and turn your face round. Putting his finger on his forehead. There, look at me here while I speak, and take good note of even the smallest word. I am going to wed you, Agnes. You ought to bless your stars a hundred times a day to think of your former low estate, and at the same time to wonder at my goodness in raising you from a poor country girl to the honourable rank of a citizen's wife. To enjoy the bed and the embraces of a man who has shunned all such trammels, and whose heart has refused to a score of women, well fitted to please, the honour which he intends to confer on you. You must always keep in mind, I say, how insignificant you would be without this glorious alliance, in order that the picture may teach you the better to merit the condition in which I shall place you, and make you always know yourself, so that I may never repent of what I am doing. Marriage, Agnès, is no joke. The position of a wife calls for strict duties. I do not mean to exalt you to that condition in order that you may be free and take your ease. Your sex is formed for dependence. Omnipotence goes with the beard. Though there are two halves in the connection, yet these two halves are by no means equal. The one half is supreme, the other subordinate. The one is all submission to the other which rules. The obedience which the well-disciplined soldier shows to his leader, the servant to his master, a child to his parent, the lowest monk to his superior, 
is far below the docility obedience humility and profound respect due from the wife to her husband her chief her lord and her master when he looks at her gravely her duty is at once to lower her eyes never daring to look him in the face until he chooses to favour her with a tender glance our women nowadays do not understand this but do not be spoilt by the example of others take care not to imitate those miserable flirts whose pranks are talked of all over the city and do not let the evil one tempt you that is do not listen to any young coxcomb remember agnes that in making you part of myself i give my honour into your hands which honour is fragile and easily damaged that it will not do to trifle in such a matter and that there are boiling cauldrons in hell into which wives who live wickedly are thrown for evermore i'm not telling you a parcel of stories you ought to let these lessons sink into your heart if you practice them sincerely and take care not to flirt your soul will ever be white and spotless as a lily but if you stain your honour it will become as black as coal you will seem hideous to all and one day you will become the devil's own property and boil in hell to all eternity from which may the goodness of heaven defend you make a curtsy as a novice in a convent ought to know her duties by heart so it ought to be on getting married here in my pocket i have an important document which will teach you the duty of a wife i do not know the author but it is some good soul or other and i desire that this shall be your only study rises stay let me see if you can read it fairly agnes reads the maxims of marriage or the duties of a wife together with her daily exercise first maxim she who is honourably wed should remember notwithstanding the fashion nowadays that the man who marries does not take a wife for any one but himself i shall explain what that means but at present let us only read second maxim she ought not to protect herself more than her husband likes the care of her beauty concerns him alone and if others think her plain that must go for nothing third maxim far from her be the study of ogling washes paints pomatums and a thousand preparations for a good complexion these are ever fatal poisons to honour and the pains bestowed to look beautiful are seldom taken for a husband fourth maxim when she goes out she should conceal the glances of her eyes beneath her hood as honour requires for in order to please a husband rightly she should please none else fifth maxim it is fit that she receives none but those who visit her husband the gallants out of no business but with the wife are not agreeable to the husband sixth maxim she must firmly refuse presents from men for in these days nothing is given for nothing seventh maxim amongst the furniture however she dislikes it there must be neither writing desk ink paper nor pens according to all good rules everything written in the house should be written by the husband eighth maxim those disorderly meetings called social gatherings ever corrupt the minds of women it is good policy to forbid them for there they conspire against the poor husbands ninth maxim every woman who wishes to preserve her honour should abstain from gambling as a plague for play is very seductive and often drives a woman to put down her last stake tenth maxim she must not venture on public promenades nor picnics 
for wise men are of opinion that it is always the husband who pays for such treats. Eleventh maxim. You shall finish it by yourself. And by and by I shall explain these things to you properly, word for word. I bethink myself of an engagement. I have but one word to say, and I shall not stay long. Go in again and take special care of this volume. If the notary comes, let him wait for me a short time. Scene 3. Arnulf, alone. I cannot do better than make her my wife. I shall be able to mould her as I please. She is like a bit of wax in my hands, and I can give her what shape I like. She was near being wild away from me in my absence through her excess of simplicity. But to say the truth, it is better that a wife should err on that side. The cure for these faults is easy. Every simple person is docile. And if she is led out of the right way, a couple of words will instantly bring her back again. But a clever woman is quite another sort of animal. Our lot depends only on her judgment. Nought can divert her from what she is set on, and our teaching in such a case is futile. Her wit avails her to ridicule our maxims, often to turn her vices into virtues, and to find means to cheat the ablest, so as to compass her own ends. We labour in vain to parry the blow. A clever woman is a devil at intrigue, and when her whim has mutely passed sentence on our honour, we must knock under. Many good fellows could tell as much. But my blundering friend shall have no cause to laugh. He has reaped the harvest of his gossip. This is the general fault of Frenchmen. When they have a love adventure, secrecy bores them, and silly vanity has so many charms for them that they would rather hang themselves than hold their tongues. Oh, women are an easy prey to Satan when they go and choose such adulpates. And when... But here he is. I must dissemble and find out how he has been mortified. Scene 4. Horace Arnolf. I am come from your house. Fate seems resolved that I shall never meet you there. But I shall go so often that some time or other. Ah, for goodness sake, do not let us begin these idle compliments. Nothing vexes me like ceremony. And if I could have my way, it should be abolished. It is a wretched custom, and most people foolishly waste two-thirds of their time on it. Let us put on our hat without more ado. Puts on his hat. Well, how about your love affair? May I know, Mr. Horace, how it goes? I was diverted for a while by some business that came into my head, but since then I have been thinking of it. I admire the rapidity of your commencement, and am interested in the issue. Indeed, since I confided in you, my love has been unfortunate. Aye, how so? Cruel fate has brought her governor back from the country. What bad luck! Moreover, to my great sorrow, she has discovered what has passed in private between us. How the deuce could he discover this affair so soon? I do not know, but it certainly is so. I meant, at the usual hour, to pay a short visit to my young charmer, when, with altered voice and looks, her two servants barred my entrance, and somewhat rudely shut the door in my face, saying, Begone! You bring us into trouble. The door in your face? In my face. That was rather hard. I wished to speak to them through the door, but to all I said their only answer was, You shan't come in. Master has forbidden it. 
did they not open the door then no and agnes from the window made me more certain as to her master's return by bidding me be gone in a very angry tone and flinging a stone at me into the bargain what a stone not a small one either that was how she rewarded my visit with her own hands the devil these are no trifles your affair seems to me in a bad way true i am in a quandary through this unlucky return really i am sorry for you i declare i am this fellow mars all yes but that is nothing you'll find a way to recover yourself i must try by some device to baffle the strict watch of this jealous fellow that will be easy after all the girl loves you doubtless you will compass your end i hope so the stone has put you out but you cannot wonder at it true and i understood in a moment that my rival was there and that he was directing all without being seen but what surprised me and will surprise you is another incident i am going to tell you of a bold stroke of this lovely girl which one could not have expected from her simplicity love it must be allowed is an able master he teaches us to be what we never were before a complete change in our manners is often the work of a moment under his tuition he breaks through the impediments in our nature and his sudden feats have the air of miracles in an instant he makes a miser liberal a coward brave a churl polite he renders the dullest soul fit for anything and gives wit to the most simple yes this last miracle is surprising in agnes for blurting out these very words begone i am resolved never to receive your visits i know all you would say and there is my answer this stone or pebble at which you are surprised fell at my feet with a letter oh i greatly admire this note chiming in with the significance of her words and the casting of the stone are you not surprised by such an action as this does not love know how to sharpen the understanding and can it be denied that his ardent flames have marvellous effects on the heart what say you of the trick and of the letter ah do you not admire her cunning contrivance is it not amusing to see what a part my jealous rival has played in all this game say ay very amusing laugh at it then <laughs> this fellow garrisoned against my passion who shuts himself up in his house and seems provided with stones as though i were preparing to enter by storm who in his ridiculous terror encourages all his household to drive me away is tricked before his very eyes by her whom he would keep in the utmost ignorance for my part i confess that although his return throws my love affair into disorder i think all this so exceedingly comical that i cannot forbear laughing at it whenever it comes to my head <laughs> oh it seems to me that you do not laugh at it half enough <laughs> i beg pardon i laugh at it as much as i can <laughs> but i must show you her letter for friendship's sake a hand knew how to set down all that her heart felt but in such touching terms so kind so innocently tender so ingenuous oh in a word just as an unaffected nature confesses its first attack of love arnolf 
softly. This is the use you make of writing, you hussy. It was against my wish you ever learned it. Horace reads. I wish to write to you, but I am at a loss how to begin. I have some thoughts which I should like you to know, but I do not know how to tell them to you, and I mistrust my own words. As I begin to feel that I have been always kept in ignorance, I fear to say something which is not right, and to express more than I ought. In fact, I do not know what you have done to me, but I feel that I am desperately vexed at what I am made to do against you, that it would be the hardest thing in the world for me to do without you, and that I should be very glad to be with you. Perhaps it is wrong to say that, but the truth is I cannot help saying it, and I wish it could be brought about without harm. I am assured that all young men are deceivers, that they must not be listened to, and that all you told me was but to deceive me. But I assure you I have not yet come to believe that of you, and I am so touched by her words that I could not believe them false. Tell me frankly if they be, for, to be brief, as I am without an evil thought, you would be extremely wicked to deceive me, and I think I should die of vexation at such a thing. Arnulf aside. Ah, the cat! What is wrong? Wrong? Nothing! I was only coughing. Have you ever heard a more tender expression? In spite of the cursed endeavours of unreasonable power, could you imagine a more genuine nature? Is it not beyond doubt a terrible crime villainously to mar such an admirable spirit, to try to stifle this bright soul in ignorance and stupidity? Love has begun to tear away the veil, and if, thanks to some lucky star, I can deal, as I hope, with this sheer animal, this wretch, this... Hangdog, this scoundrel, this brute! Uh, goodbye. Why are you in such a hurry? It just occurs to me that I have a pressing engagement. But do you not know anyone? For you live close by who could get access to this house. I am open with you, and it is the usual thing for friends to help each other in these cases. I have no one there now except people who watch me. Maid and man, as I just experienced, would not cease their rudeness and listen to me, do what I would. I had for some time in my interest an old woman of remarkable shrewdness, in fact, more than human. She served me well in the beginning, but the poor woman died four days ago. Can you not devise some plan for me? No, really. You will easily find someone without me. <sighs> Goodbye, then. You see what confidence I put in you. Scene 5. Arnulf, alone. How I am obliged to suffer before him. How hard it is to conceal my gnawing pain. What? Such ready wit in a simpleton. The traitress has pretended to be so to my face, or the devil has breathed this cunning into her heart. But now that cursed letter is the death of me. I see that the rascal has corrupted her mind and has established himself there in my stead. This is despair and deadly anguish for me. I suffer doubly by being robbed of her heart, for love as well as honour is injured by it. It drives me mad to find my place usurped, and I am enraged to see my prudence defeated. I know that to punish her guilty passion I have only to leave her to her evil fate, and that I shall be revenged on her by herself but it is very vexatious to lose what we love. Good heaven! 
after employing so much philosophy in my choice why am i to be so terribly bewitched by her charms she has neither relatives friends nor money she abuses my care my kindness my tenderness and yet i love her to distraction even after this base trick fool have you no shame oh, i cannot contain myself i am mad i could punch my head a thousand times over i shall go in for a little but only to see what she looks like after so vile a deed oh heaven grant that my brow may escape dishonour or rather if it is decreed that i must endure it at least grant me under such misfortunes that fortitude with which few are endowed end of act three